some people turn out a certain way because of their father, and other people turn out a certain way in spite of their father. And I think in your situation, you've turned out the way you have in spite of your biological father. You are listening to the eighth and final episode of Complicated Fatherhood. I'm your host, Ryan Rucker. And if this is your first time listening to this podcast, well, thank you. But spoiler alert, this is the last episode of a limited docuseries podcast. If I were you, I'd start with episode one and work your way up from there. But hey, you do you. If you've been waiting until the final episode to give your rating and review, well, now's your chance. At the end of the episode, head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating if you could. It has been an absolute blast taking this journey with you all. And I am truly, truly thankful to each and every single one of you. Now, one last time, let's get into it. Kobe Bryant, the Black Mamba. I was nine years old when he was drafted into the NBA. And not only do I remember every detail of where I was during the 1996 NBA draft, but I remember every detail about where I was 20 years later on the night he dropped 60 points on the Utah Jazz in his final game. I always loved Kobe. Maybe not when he and his Lakers took out my Pacers in the 2000 NBA Finals, but as a kid, I wanted to be Kobe the basketball player. I mean, who didn't? NBA dunk champion, youngest NBA all-star ever, world champion shooting guard for the Los Angeles Lakers. As I got older, my ambitions never changed. I still wanted to be Kobe, but as an adult, preparing to welcome my first daughter into the world, I no longer had aspirations of being Kobe the Hall of Fame basketball player. I wanted to be Kobe the girl dad. In Kobe's book, The Mamba Mentality, he says, if you really want to be great at something, you have to truly care about it. If you want to be great in a particular area, you have to obsess over it. A lot of people say they want to be great, but they're not willing to make the sacrifices necessary to achieve greatness. They have other concerns, whether important or not, and they spread themselves out. That's totally fine. After all, greatness is not for everybody. I miss Kobe a lot. Maurice and I were scheduled to record the second episode of this podcast on the day that Kobe passed. After the news broke, honestly, I just couldn't do it. Hearing that he had passed was devastating enough. For an hour, Allie and I watched NBA TV as his former teammate, Brian Shaw, fought back tears discussing the shock associated with this new reality. Around 1 p.m., I put Reagan down for her nap, and as she fell asleep, I laid next to her bed, silently crying. Moments later, I got the notification that Kobe's daughter, Gigi, was amongst those lost in the helicopter crash. My silent tears turned into an audible, full-blown weep as I laid on my daughter's bedroom floor, crushed by the cruelty of a world that could steal a lifetime of future wisdom and potential away from us just like that. Kobe and Gigi's loss crushed me. Honestly, I, I feel selfish saying that as someone who never knew them, but all in all, I'll be damned if I don't honor Mamba and Mambasita by being the absolute best father to my girls, just like Kobe was to his. I began this project as a way for me to explore my fatherhood through conversations with a father who through his absence motivated me to be the father that I am today. I want my legacy to be centered around the deep determination I have to be a great dad. I want to be known for my love of fatherhood and all it encompasses. The love of mundane tasks that make fatherhood what it is. In short, I want to be known for my mama mentality. 
That Mamba mentality isn't solely about the basketball court. That mindset can be adapted into anything we do, including parenthood. But if there's anything I've learned in order for me to be the best dad I can be, I need to understand where I've been before I'm able to become the man I want to become. In other words, in order to fully become who you're meant to be, you need to evolve. I know more about fatherhood today than I knew the day Reagan was born. I know more today than the day that Sienna was born. I know more today than I knew yesterday and my goal is to know more tomorrow than I knew today. There are no shortcuts to being a great dad and there will be no shortage of obstacles along the way. Sometimes it takes tough conversations and for me, these conversations, as hard and as awkward as they may have been, have given me a stronger understanding as to why I strive to be the best dad around. After Kobe's 10th season, he changed his number. A change that to some didn't make sense. Kobe was known for that number eight. He won three championships and scored 81 points with that number. Why would a player of Kobe's stature just change his signature jersey like that? Well, Kobe made that change to symbolize a new beginning, referencing a greater maturity level, in part crediting his marriage and two daughters for that maturity. As a man, Kobe felt he needed to transition out from the past and step into this new identity to become the elevated version of himself, who eventually won two more championships, two gold medals, and had two more daughters, while defying all odds and winning an Oscar for his film, Dear Basketball, less than two years after his retirement from the game of basketball. Sometimes intentional and even symbolic changes are the only way to move forward. Kobe wanted greatness, and so do I. That's why in my own journey through this complicated fatherhood, it's important for me to learn how to maneuver from eight to 24. So anyway, I, I like I went through my my stuff, mm-hmm. and remember I you asked me about the poem. Yeah. Then I told yeah. you about the other thing that I wrote for you, you uh, Adrian and Tony. Uh huh. I was gonna read it to you, but then I read it, and I was like, wow, I must have been severely depressed when I wrote this. Really? Because really? I mean, it, it was basically. A lot of the things that we've talked about, my like selfish lifestyle and you know, not taking responsibility for my for my kids and it was just like I read it. I'm like, shit, I don't wanna read this to anybody. <laughs> this is painful. <laughs> so but uh on the same day I read it, I saw this guy on PBS. He's a uh, uh a monk or a former monk. I don't know his name. Good looking Indian guy. Yes. You know, sort of like hazel eyes. And, but he was talking about things that help him in times of depression. Mm-hmm. And he said, there are three things. He says, think about the people you've loved in your life, family or not, just people you've loved. Think about them. Think about the places you've been. It's like, okay. Mm-hmm. And then thirdly, think about the projects you were involved in. Mm. And I got thinking about those three things. It's like, I'm like, yeah, I've done a lot of fucked up things in my life, but I've been involved with some really cool things and I've seen like I've never left the country except for go to Canada, but mm-hmm. I've seen some really cool places in this country. And there's been a lot of people that I could genuinely say I've loved. And it really, when I, when I heard that, I thought about it. I'm like, wow, yeah, that's kind of uplifting. That makes you, that made me feel kind of good. 
Okay. Well, you know, yeah, like, I mean, I think about, like, all the after-school programs I've worked in and all the gardens I've built and the bands that I've been in and the songs that I wrote and just, like, you know, it's, 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 it hasn't, my life hasn't been a total loss, mm-hmm. although I didn't take responsibility for a lot, but, you know that's who I am and that's where I've been. Now, now, when you say that's, that's who I am, do you think that is who you were or who you currently are still? I, I think like my, clearly my priorities have changed since I've gotten older. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of it is just, I mean, the reason I think I've changed because I'm thinking about my mortality. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about my physical abilities. I'm thinking about like how, how it's gotten harder for me to learn things as I've gotten older. Mm-hmm. Although I, I believe I know a lot of things that, you know, I didn't know when I was a young person. So I believe I am the same person, but just with an older person's perspective, like I realize a lot of the bad things I've done, would I go back and change them? Well, with what I know now, yeah. But if I went back to who I was like, 40 years ago, mm-hmm. I, I, I believe that because of my upbringing and the knowledge that I had for 40 years ago, mm-hmm. I would have, it would have been the same situation. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was raised, you know, people are poor and people are grow up without parents. Like, like I, here's like one thing I was thinking about recently I've never sat down with anybody in my family to do my homework. Mm, what do you mean? I've just never, like, I never really had any educational guidance for my family when I was a kid. I kind of felt like I was sort of a toy. <laughs> to be, you know, sort of like played with and laughed at and, you know, kind of made fun of and just, you know, I, you know, there's a lot of times, you know, I'd wake up in the morning and I'd want to have cereal and there's no milk. And, mm. I've, and I've actually tried cereal with water and sugar to see what it tastes like. It's not mm. a good thing. Yeah. But, um, so I just, I think my experiences growing up, you know, moving around, moving from Rensselaer to Phoenix and trying to establish friendships and relationships in Phoenix, then moving back to Rensselaer. And I'm in Rensselaer with people I knew when I was a couple of years before, but they've all been together. So their bonds are tighter than mine and I'll come back and I'll live there a couple of years then he'd pack us up and we'd go to Phoenix again and we'd live in a different neighborhood in Phoenix mm-hmm. and go to a different school and we try to like relate to people for like you know a short period of time but I like like I don't remember in Phoenix like to this day I, I can't re- picture myself at one point in my life in Phoenix playing with another child. Really? Like, I don't, I don't remember having any friends where I, when I was a kid in Phoenix, I, when I was there in junior high, I had no like friends. I just hung out. My brother Garland came out and he was there for a while before our father sent us back. Mm-hmm. But I just never, I've never bonded with people because I, I never felt I was around them 
long enough. Like, you know, I like I have like maybe three people that I remember from my childhood in Rensselaer, and that's Faye Gerald, and Peter. Okay. <laughs> and and it's kind of odd because Gerald, you know, as when I left. Gerald started dating um, Fei-Fei, and they were boyfriend and girlfriend, I guess, through high school. Mm-hmm. Then Peter got Fei-Fei pregnant. So, oh. they, yeah, so I, you know, I haven't been around them in years, but I've seen them all since I, I, I got back, and, you know, like, Peter and Faith, they have like a 45-year-old daughter or like almost 50-year-old daughter. And I talked to Gerald one day and he's he's my age. Mm-hmm. And he's still, he's pissed off about that. He's pissed. I remember just w- running into him in the street and we just started talking. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, I brought up or he brought up Faith. And he, I could see the change in him. I was like, wow, that that relationship of my three best friends just went awry. And I was nowhere around to see it happen. And it just, here I am now, I'm, I'm, I'm 62 years old, and uh, I'm trying to connect with people. Like, it's it's just weird. I just, we run into people who my brothers and sisters know, but I don't. Like, I apparently hung out with them when I was a kid, but I don't really know them. I don't, you know, I can't remember people's names. And, you know, people look different now that they're like, now that it's 45 years later. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I just, I think I am the person that I was taught to be when I was a kid. And it's, and it's caused some, you know, I was just, I, I just sent an email to, um, to Adrian about something. Cause she just sent me one and said, are you okay? Or texted me and said, are you okay? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Blah, 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 blah. Then I get to the end of it and, you know, I, I sign it. And I sign dad. And every time I write that, I feel kind of weird. Like, cause she calls me dad and Tony calls me dad. And I'm like, yeah, okay. You can call me what you want. But I kind of feel like, I, like you asked me about that thing. Should, you know, how, how do I feel, feel right calling myself grandfather? Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah, I, do because it's about now it's not about who i was it's about who i am now mm-hmm. and i have four grandchildren and i just i can't deny it and i don't want them to, to deny me and uh you know regardless of the relationships that i've had with their parents i still want to um like move forward and have some sort of relationship with all four of them or five or whatever happens, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So yeah. that's, that's my opening statement. <laughs> now, when you, said that, you know, you, you wrote down dad, um, you know, and, and you felt a little strange doing that. Like, where where do you think that came from? Like, your your feelings. Of- oh, and like like every every time every time I sign something, Dad, like I, a birthday card or a Christmas card, I just I kind of sometimes want to just write Maurice mm-hmm. because although I am all three of your biological father, I don't think that I did anything to deserve being called dad. That's because I just, I, when I think of dad, I, I, it's not like the same as father. Like father to me is 
something physical and historical and it's like it's part of our lineage i you know regardless to what my father did he was my father and even though i would probably never call him dad ever um and whatever i've done i am physically your father tony's father and adrian's father like what was a Vera, Vera Chuck and Dave? You know what that's from? I I don't. Vera, I don't. Wow. It's from the song "When I'm 64." Who sings it? By the Beatles. Oh, okay. Yeah, you should listen to it sometimes. It's like he just talks about you know what's gonna happen when I'm 64. Will I hear from my kids Vera, Chuck, and Dave? So, mm. um. I'll I'll have to listen to this later. Yeah, yeah, but you know, I I just I, it, yeah, like I said, it just feels weird that I'm starting to sign stuff as dad at 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 you know fifty and older, and you know I've I've always been either Maurice or Mo or I'm Sputnik to my brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. But but uh that the dad thing, I I just I've I've never lived as anyone's dad. That's I mean, I'm I'm trying to like be a good man at this point in my life. Mm-hmm. But um you know, I mean I've always thought of you three as my kids yeah because physically you are um but i just i've never done the dad thing ever Hmm. correctly you know i've done it a a few months or a few years with maybe each one of you yeah yeah you know in in terms of like responsibility and things like that i know you know, if there's anything in my life, which certainly there are, where like I need to take responsibility for, like a big part of that is is apologizing for it, validating those feelings, and then moving forward. Like, do you feel like in, in your life you've done a good or adequate job of apologizing to those people in your life that you, you feel like you need to? No, no, not really. Um, I, you know... I mean, I've, I've written about it. Um, but no, not really. I just, I just think that the, uh, the list is, is, is long. Um, I, you know, I mean, I think I've, I think I've tried to apologize to you. I, I don't even know if I've ever said the words, I am sorry, but I really am. And, you know, Adrian and I, we've, we've had conversations about it. And, and, uh, Tony, when I, when I talked to Tony, he, he seems sort of cavalier about it he's like yeah well you know whatever you know hey what happened happened don't worry about it that's kind of his response Mm. um but i've never you know i mean on easter i called all of my brothers and sisters and talked to each one of them and i said this is what i got from you in my life yeah and and I'm I'm glad that you're part of my life. Um, in terms of apologizing to them, I don't mm-hmm. think that it was necessary because it's not like I did anything specifically to my brothers and sisters, except made them wonder a couple times in their life if I was dead because I didn't contact anybody for like a year or two years. Mm-hmm. So that, that if I was going to apologize for anything, I should apologize for that. Yeah. You know, 
but right now I'm just I'm just trying to live live as a good person. I just try to do things to help my my family out. Uh, you know, I'm not you know I'm clearly not a rich man, but and um and I'm not really like I think in terms of talking to people on the phone, I think that this conversation with you today probably is the most amount of times that I've ever talked to anyone on the phone. Really? Yeah, yeah. Because I'm not really a big phone person, Mm -hmm. and I'm not a big just hanging out with people. I, you know... I prefer to have like a one-on-one face-to-face conversation with someone outside the building. I'm just, and I think that I've always been that way. I, you know, from playing in bands when I was 14 and we, we played at the Screw River campsite one summer and, you know, just like all summer long, we just played there and I would sing with the band then I would go hang out outside. And that's kind of how what started my whole approach to being a lead singer in a band. Okay. I, I wasn't really a very interactive person. So, and I, you know, I've, I've never been, except for, oddly enough, with kids. Like, when I'm showing kids how to make projects or how to do video or something like that I could see them light up at certain times certain things that I say yeah and like and they develop an understanding about something and I've always been once again oddly enough good with kids Mm -hmm. I you know I I don't know that's that's just me yeah. I can hang out with kids, but like, you know, when I do my art, I call it childlike and amateurish, you know, <laughs> but, but being around adults, it's just, I need limited time. Like I said, I, I, I don't want to like, if someone comes over my house, seriously, it's after about half an hour, 45 minutes, I'm ready for them to go. That's that's me. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, you know, and in terms of, you know, just like apologize, we've talked a lot about that. And, you know, I think, I think in the past, I think in 2007, when we met up, um, you know, I, I, I think you apologize. Like for, from my standpoint, I, I try not to walk into conversations with an, with an exact expectation of, of how I want someone to apologize. I mean, like there right. are times, I want somebody to be sincere, uh, but I feel like I walked away thinking like, all right, like I, I understand that he's, he's sorry. And, and from my standpoint, I was like, you know, going forward, I don't want, I don't want like this burden that I've had over me my entire life to continue with me forever. Um, and it was interesting because even last night as I was doing some research on, um, you know, just like things to say to an absent father, just like trying to figure out like, how to have this conversation because even to this day you know i think we're still trying to figure that out you know i came across this this letter that this guy wrote to his absent father and my understanding is that like this father like walked away and just never came back so and like the the letter was beautifully heartbreaking in the sense that he was like i'm not going to let this affect my fatherhood journey so like i not for you but for myself i'm going to forgive you and I'm going to let this off my shoulders and I'm going to move forward because now I have kids that I need to take responsibility for. And seeing that really, really kind of broke my heart. And it was interesting because you and I do have these conversations and like we obviously we're on different coasts and haven't seen each other, but um, you know, we at least do, you know, talk a couple times a year. And then this year, obviously we've talked a ton, um, which has right. been which has been really good. Um, But it just got me thinking of like, you know, what are some of the apologies that people like me, people like uh, this other gentleman need? Um, And it also got me thinking of like the apologies that I think the the woman, the the mothers 
need. Um, you know, I, well, I hey, that, that's kind of weird that you say that because this week I've been thinking about your mother and I was thinking I'm never ever probably going to get the opportunity to talk to her and apologize for what I did to her, the trajectory I sent her on in her life. Like she had specific plans that she was, that changed when she had a baby and I left. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I've, I've thought about like, cause I talk to Rochelle all the time. Okay. Like she calls me, we talk, we like blah, blah, blah. You know, she, she doesn't seem to like harbor anything. She, she loved raising her children and mm -hmm. that was it. She, you know, I've heard conversations about things that happen that she's told me and that Adrian's told me, mm -hmm. but I don't, it's like, she's not harboring anything, but I think it's different with Gene. I just, you know, and I just, I didn't know if I should write something to her or, you know, try to talk to her or like what? Cause I just, I just feel bad for the situation I left her in, even though, you know, I've talked to you about what I thought was going on in my life and her life and her family's life and, you know, specific things that happened. But bottom line is I wasn't strong enough or smart enough or mature enough to deal with it. Like if the same situation happened today it would be a completely different story because I'm a man who's been through like a lot of stuff and I've, you know, you know, not to get into the racism thing, but I've like, you know, I've faced a lot of racism, but I've also done a lot of stupid things myself. Mm -hmm. So I just, I just wanted the opportunity to, you know, first of all, thank her for not pursuing it in any way that could have gotten me sent to jail. That's like, like, like pursuing child support. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, she just never did. She just, just like, I'm going to do it on my own. And, and I just really, like I said, I've always felt bad about just how things ended up, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just wanted the opportunity to kind of apologize to her. That's all. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. After we, you know, when I was like 19 or 20, after we first got in, got in contact, um, it, it was it was a, a weird and interesting time for a lot of different reasons, but also because my entire life, she never spoke ill of you at all. Right. You know, like I, I knew that you were into music. You know, I think I put two and two together that like you were pursuing, you know, some music. And that was, you know, one of the reasons that, that you weren't around. And no, well, you know what? That wasn't it. Because actually when I left... Uh, Queensbury, I didn't play music for like another 10 years. Mm -hmm. Like I was done with music. It was like, like I said, I remember telling you about that time listening to a song fast cars and I mm -hmm. started crying and I just, I, I looked at music as, as, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it was a dividing thing or wasn't conducive to me being in relationships. But like I said, I, I, it was like 10 years before I started the Jones brothers and that was just a fluke, you know? So that's okay. really how I got back into it. Okay. Um, yeah, and I'm I might have put two and two together because like I knew like you were into music, and by the time that I, you know, had had found you again, I, I knew that you had the Jones Brothers things going on. So, um, 
but like regardless growing up she never she never said anything bad about you she didn't you know like trash you and you know like I, I've seen people, friends of mine who are single moms on Facebook, like I've seen some of them just trash their, you know, ex-husbands or ex-boyfriends or right, whatever. Right. You know, it was, it's always fascinating for me because I'm like, one, your kid might find this one day. Like people put things on the internet, but nobody ever takes them off. So I'm always cognizant right. of that. Um, but it really, especially now looking back, I'm like, man, she, she really never said anything bad. And then it wasn't until you know, like you, you contacted me when we started having some deeper conversations and, you know, she had mentioned that she didn't, you know, pursue child support. And from my standpoint, I was thinking like, why, like, why did you not? And I, I I don't want to speak for her, but I know a big part was like, look, like I don't want to pursue it because quite frankly, if, if he didn't want to be involved in, in our lives, then I'm not going to force him by taking his money and force him to be in a situation that he doesn't, he doesn't want to be or that he's not able to be in. And I think now as a father, I completely understand that because I see how, how fragile kids are. I see how impressionable kids are. And like my girls, I mean, hopefully I, I am a good dad, but like my girls love me regardless. You know, I could, I could have been an absolute piece of trash and my girls are, are going to love me at, at this stage, of course. Later on, that, right. that would change. I hope I never turn into that. Um, I right. don't right. anticipate that. But, you know, I, I just think of myself being a young boy in Queensbury like one of three black kids, maybe five black kids that, that I knew uh, that entire town and having you come into my life, like if you weren't emotionally there, if you weren't like able to, to really support and provide from an emotional standpoint, you know, I just think of what that would have done for my life. And like I've, I've told you in the past, and I think I've even said on these recordings, you know, I, I love where I am right now. I love the home that I'm in. I love the wife <laughs> that I'm married to. I love our kids. Yeah. I love just kind of everything I am. And I just wonder if that instability that you had had while I was growing up, like if you brought that instability into my life, I just wonder how it would have turned out. Right. I wonder that as well. Like I, I, <laughs> you turned out well in spite of me. You, um, because I've often thought about if I had the maturity or the intelligence to stay with it, I, I, well, no, like if I had the intelligence to stay there, I would have never had the maturity and we would have, you know, we would have kept fighting and even if I was there, I don't really think that I would be um, fo- I would I would I would probably less focus on the child and more focus on my negative relationship. Mm. I think I mean because I mean, I've had a lot of relationships in my life. I've been with a lot of women and they, most of them, probably 90% of them ended because of something stupid I did or said. And it became less and less as I got older, you know, as I, you know, got in my forties and fifties, I kind of figured certain things out, mm-hmm. but I, I was, I've never, and good at being in a relationship because once once again I was never mature enough. I you know I you know and I you know I I haven't had a girlfriend or been with a woman or pursued a woman in probably six six years. Mm-hmm. Like since since I told you about the stalker. Oh, no, I don't don't know if I know know about the stalker. Oh, really? I don't think so. Well, let me tell you, maybe maybe you'll have the story twice. But my brother is a pastor of a church. He has a picture of me and all my brothers in his office. Mm -hmm. This woman that was his secretary said, I want that one. 
and pointed to me. Hmm. And Bill called me and said, this is this girl. She's kind of cute. She's interested in you. I said, well, tell her to come by my house or come by Home Depot. I'm always there. Mm-hmm. Then one day, I'm standing at my register, and this woman comes up. And I'm like, oh, okay. Hi, how you doing? Since my, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm Bernadette from Bill's Church. It's like, oh, okay. Hi, how you doing? Then we, I just, yeah, she's kind of cute. I'll go out with her. So I set up a lunch. We went out lunch. And then we started dating. She came over, over my house. And it was weird because I went to her house one time and it was like, it looked abandoned. Like her bedroom, there's a mattress on the floor and boxes of clothes and her windows were boarded up. And I was like, wow, what's going on with this woman? Mm-hmm. Then, so we, we dated for about two months. And then she, um, one day she asked me to do something to talk to this person who was doing some work for her. I'm like, well, why do you need to talk? Why do you need me to talk? To so, yeah. well, I don't trust him. She's like, well, don't have him do it. If you don't trust him, why would you want me to talk to him? Cause yeah. it's not my house, you know? And I said, no, I'm not going to do it. And she said these words, she says, I, I no longer want to pursue a relationship with you. I'm like, that is so cool. Well, all right, well, I guess we're done. Then I hung up. Then about a week goes by. And I start getting calls from her and she shows up at Home Depot and stands around like over by the candy next to my, and then she was texting me. Then she was showing up at my house and she just kept, um, the, there's a bus. There's a bus called the the one bus that comes from Schenectady, where she lives. Mm-hmm. Goes um, west to east, and then the bus, the one that I catch in the morning at five thirty in the morning, goes east to west. Both of them up and down Central Avenue, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> so. I would get on the bus in the morning at 5.30 going in the direction of Schenectady and she would be on the bus. Oh. Okay. And then one time I got off the bus and she got off the bus and she was pushing like a baby carriage with bags in it. Like, I don't know what happened to her car, but um, she's pushing and then she, when they opened the door to let the staff in, she tried to come in. They're like, no, no, you can't come in yet. We're not open till like eight or whatever. So she okay. stood out there, waited, and came in the building and stood around and said, hi, how you doing? And came over like trying to talk to me. And I, I told I told the manager, I'm like, this, this woman is kind of stalking me. And I just, so they called the police. And they, the police took her away. Then the very last time I saw her, like I still heard from her after that, but the last time I saw her, my sister Marcia was in my apartment. Marcia and Roger both lived upstairs from me. And so Marcia left my apartment and it was like the first apartment next to the elevator. And she left and I went in the bathroom and a little while later my phone rang. And uh, oh, by the way, in the interim, I had gone to the court and got a restraining order against her. And we were supposed to be in court, to, and she didn't show up, or she showed up late. Okay. So they did a restraining order against her. And so Marsha leaves my house. I'm in the bathroom. My phone rings again. I run out. I pick up the phone. It's Marsha. Marsha said, she's outside your apartment. I'm like, out in the courtyard? She says, no, she's sitting on the seat next to the elevator outside your apartment (laughs) like okay so i call the police this woman cop shows up comes in so what's the deal i I told her what was going on Mm -hmm. like at one point just she slipped under under my under my um door 
a folder, a UPS folder, and I mm-hmm. opened it up, and it was like her CV was in there, a note that she was about to get a bunch of money, uh, just some other stuff, you know, saying I'm, I'm legally okay to be out on the street or whatever. And she had a bag of marshmallows, and she said to the cop, she says, uh, he and I have mutual friends, and I just had to give this to him. I'm like, okay, so she came here with a bag of marshmallows to give me from somebody else. Yeah, all right. And the cops are, yeah, well, she also has another warrant, so we're going to take her away. And that was that was uh, the story of Bernadette. Like I said, she, she still texts me after that, and she would call every once in a while and leave a message. But, you know... Wow! But yeah, it was it was it was a weird, weird probably six months in my life. That's that story took a twist. I was not anticipating. <laughs> you weren't anticipating what? I wasn't anticipating that. That was uh, that was quite the the twisting story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hey. I'm telling you. So that that yeah that that's my that's my stalker story. All right. Well, I appreciate appreciate knowing that story. That, uh, that is crazy. Anyway, but I got this. I got this. You are a rucker thing here. You want me to read it to you? Yeah, let, let's hear it. And um, so the, this is the poem that you wrote for uh, your granddaughters, correct? Yep, my three granddaughters. It was right after, right after Sienna was born, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I remember that and yeah well yeah let's let's hear it and then we'll talk about it. Okay, all right. You are a rocker. That's a good thing to be. It didn't start with your dad. Didn't even start with me. It started on a bus a long time ago. A bus in Cleveland. That's an Ohio. The driver was Winford. The rider was Orlean. He talked her up. On him, she was keen. They met, they smiled, she rode for a while. Then they got married, together had nine. Seven boys, two girls, I was eighth in line. This all led to you, you beautiful girl, the brightest and funniest in the whole wide world. Be proud of who you are, live your very best life, cause you'll always be a rucker even if someone makes you their wife. That's it. Because I, I told you I talked to, to Kia one time, and I, I said, Kia, when you, when you get married, you want to get a man that'll change his name to Rucker. Mm-hmm. She, said, she said, that probably ain't going to happen, Grandpa. <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so that's that. That, that poem, I, I think, will forever be forever be with me for a couple of reasons. Number one, oh man, that when I got that poem and it's funny, I pulled it up on Facebook earlier because I wanted to know when I got it and you had posted on Facebook, August 28th, 2019, which yeah, this was about two and a half months after Sienna was born. And it's also three or four weeks after both of my grandparents had passed. And just when I saw there was just, I was so emotional for that period. Number one, after Sienna was born, you know, like I went through, um, I, I, I was, I think, struggling with, with a lot. I don't know if it was just from going from one to two or just, you know, I just can't mess up in terms of my job and like right. that, that added pressure. I, I don't know what it was, but I think mentally I just wasn't in a, in a great place after Sienna was born and just trying my best and feeling like I wasn't able to connect with her early on. So like there was that. And then my grandparents, you know, both passed um, within hours of each other. And, you know, like I've mentioned, I was really close with them, lived with them for a little while, took a cross country trip with them for, for <laughs> one week, which was a wild ride. Um, but, you know, so then that happened. And then I got that, that t-shirt from you with the Rucker family reunion. And then I got this poem. So just like that entire month of August was such a whirlwind for me. And that's actually like the catalyst that, that 
kind of led to these conversations that we're having today. Because with my grandparents, like I knew a lot about their their story. I knew a lot about their history. I knew when they were married. I knew how they met. You know, like I heard these stories so many times, especially my grandpa would tell me like, he would just tell me nonstop, especially in like later years. So I knew a lot of the story. But then as I got that t-shirt and as I read this poem, I was like, I don't know a lot about you and your side of the family. Like we'll talk about music, we'll talk about politics, we'll talk about like, you know, all sorts of things. But I didn't know how your parents met. I didn't even know really how many siblings you had. And as my girls grow um, and as I like step into my fatherhood, there's just so much of my story that is tied to yours and tied to your parents that I just wasn't aware of. And, you know, so I feel like that poem is the catalyst for these conversations to say like, you know what? I had a lot of emotions while I was reading it just in terms of on one hand thinking like, Oh, that's really sweet. And on the other hand, feeling also bitter, but wanting to really kind of create this story for, for my girls to have them understand as they grow, where they came from, you know, regardless right, of where, right. where, where I am. Right, right. That's what I think. I mean, I think your mother did a good job, but I think your grandparents may have instilled some stuff in you that only older people can give you. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, they, they did. And um, my mom and I have talked a lot about them, you know, over the past really couple months. And, Oh, it's, it's been a rough year, you know, cause they were 91 and 88 when they passed. And right. again, we, we had got a call. Um, they were out here in California with us for, for months. I'd actually went back in 2015, me and my mom, you know, cause my, my grandma had taken a fall and she just wasn't doing well. So me and my mom went back there to New York and actually moved them, like packed up all their stuff, moved them to California with us in 2015. And, you know, they, they lived with, with my mom and stepdad for four years. And then it just got to the point, honestly, it had been to the point, but it just really got to the point where they needed professional care. Like my, my mom, who was a full-time teacher, who had been taking care of me my whole life and then taking care of my grandparents. Like she just never had any of that, like her time or, you know, her and my right. stepdad, you know, so right. they actually they had an opportunity to get into a nursing home back in New York. And my grandpa always just wanted to be back in New York. Like he, he liked being with us in California, but New York was, was his home. New York was his heart. Right, right. Um, so they had an opportunity to go back. And my mom called me. This was like two weeks before Sienna was born and her due date was June 15th. And she was like, we have an opportunity to get them into, to a nursing home, but we're going to have to get them out there like really soon. And I was like, I, I just remember, thinking like, God, please, please just let her, please just let her meet Sienna. Like she had a really, my grandparents both had a really good relationship with Reagan. They loved her. Reagan knew them. Even now, like she still talks about them. We have all sorts of pictures and videos. But I was like, I just want my grandparents to meet Sienna. That's all I want. And thankfully, Sienna was born on her due date. Um, my mom already had a ticket to fly back. I think it was June 17th or 18th. It was like two or three days after Sienna was born. So we yeah. we brought Sienna home on the 16th, went over um, to my, my grandparents' house on the, or my, my parents' house on the 17th. And um, yeah, my, my grandma, it was just, it was the sweetest thing because like she, you know, mentally was, was there sometimes, but more than likely not. And we just put Sienna in her arms at two days old and, God, my grandma just held her and held her. And we, we thought it would last for like a minute and then she like wouldn't want to anymore. And she held her for 20, 30 minutes and just stared at her and stared at her. Oh, it was the most beautiful thing. And like, from my perspective, just like sitting there watching them interact and Sienna slept the whole time. My grandma just stared at her the whole time. My grandpa was funny. You know, he was just making faces at Reagan because him and Reagan had re- had something really special, like really, really special. <laughs> it was funny because like even from day one, um, 
you know, like grandpa would just make Reagan smile and vice versa. And I'll never forget my grandma actually said regarding my grandpa, like, I don't, I don't know why Reagan likes him so much. None of his own kids ever did. And <laughs> <laughs> the, the funniest thing, because my grandpa wasn't like the softest guy. Like, I don't think anybody would ever refer to him as like a soft, cuddly bear. Um, but right, right. Reagan did it to him. And so just to to know the relationship I had with my grandparents and the fact that both of them got to meet my girls and had a really good relationship with Reagan. And, oh, it just, even, even now, like I look at the pictures of four generations. I look at my girls, I look at me, my mom and my grandparents, like we have pictures of all of us. And it just really reminds me how incredibly important family dynamics are. Um, right. Regardless, and obviously with my grandparents, they had been there for me since day one. They had, had stepped up when financially things were tough. They literally moved into the home next door to us so they could be with us. Like they moved out to California when I was in high school so they could be close to us. And, you know, and then when they needed it, like we moved them, they moved back to, to, to New York, I think in 2005. And then, you know, 10 years later, we brought them back to California when they really needed. So we had just, we had always been there for each other. Um, and again, my girls have that side of the family. Like they, they know that history. They're going to continue to know the history. We have pictures galore. Um, but whether you're there or not, I think those family dynamics play a huge part into who you, who you become as an adult. And honestly, that's a huge, why, a huge reason why I wanted to do this project with you is to understand, right, right. understand your parents and understand why I look at fatherhood the way I do, why I look at being a dad the way I do. and so my girls, as they grow, they have something too. And they, they know where I came from. They know who you are through these recordings. Yeah. You, you'll, you'll do some editing, correct? Oh, for sure. Oh. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'll definitely do some editing. Yeah, uh, cool. <laughs> like, I go from the Home Depot guy to, like, the, the, the bad dad, <laughs> you know, whatever. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I think, I think this story is going to resonate with people. I really do because there's, um, you know, even like I said last night, I was just kind of Googling like absent fatherhood. And from, from where I'm sitting, it's, it's weird because we have a, a good relationship now. Like, you know, I mean, I've really enjoyed these conversations, even outside of the recording. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to, just talking to you about like everyday things now. Cause I feel like there's been this, uh, this like unspoken, I, I don't want to say an unspoken tension, but like maybe something that wasn't there that I feel like has been broken off now. Um, yeah. That, you know, I think, yeah, can... I, I, I mean, I, I would call it an unspoken tension. I, yeah. you know, cause there's, I mean, there's times like in the past, you know, in the past 10 years, I guess it's been mm -hmm. that I've wanted to call you and just chat. I'm like, well, oh, now he, he's, he's got his life. He doesn't want to hear from me all the time. You know, it's like I would call if I thought, you know, something special had happened or I, I, I just, I couldn't hold back anymore. Yeah. But it was always, it's, it's for the past 10 years, up until now, it's been a struggle for me to just talk to you because it's, it's, it's been a, it's been a struggle. Cause I, um, I'm just like, what are we going to talk about? Who like, you know, mm -hmm. and I didn't, I didn't realize that, that, you know, like when you said, when I first contacted you and you got overwhelmed by the responses of cousins and stuff, Mm -hmm. See, I, and I was just thinking, it's like, oh man, I don't, I don't want him to have to be dealing with shit that he really doesn't want to deal with right now. And although at that conversation when we met, um, I think at some point you said something like it's water under the bridge or, or it's, you know, at some point you said to me, well, that was then, this is now. Yeah, and I, you know, and I, and I try to like move forward with that in mind. You know, mm -hmm. that was then. This is now. But uh, mm -hmm. there's still, there's, you know, whatever. I, I, 
I got I, I have a song that I wrote that I, I should email to you. It's called uh, 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 Another Moment. Basically, it's if you know if there's if there's someone you've been meaning to talk to, if there's someone you've been meaning to call, if there's someone who's been running through your mind, don't let it slip away. Um, and it goes into don't wait another moment, don't wait another moment. It, you know, it, it, there's the line, if there's an apology in order, uh, yeah, yeah, you have to listen to the whole song. I'll, I'll send you, I'll send you a copy of it. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. But it's like, don't wait another moment. Like, do it now. Don't, you know, people that you've wronged in your life, go back and apologize, you know, go back, you know, that's kind of, kind of a reoccurring theme in some songs that I write. I, you know, I write about, uh, you know, apologizing in your life for shit you've done. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, I mean, it's just a mix of stuff, but I, I, I go back. I go back to like opportunities missed, and you know, moving away from certain things. And so, like mm -hmm. I said, it's a reoccurring theme. I'll, 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 I'll send you a copy. Yeah, yeah, I love that. So uh, you know, I would even even if we weren't recording this, I I wouldn't mind talking to you at noon on Sundays. For yeah, like the rest that. of my life. <laughs> let's, let's do it. I, yeah, I, I think it would be good to, for really for both of us, just to you know continue to have these conversations, and um, you know I think it's I think it's important from from both of our perspectives. Yeah, I mean, because I, I I think things during the week. I'm like, oh yeah, I got to talk to Ryan about this, and a lot of them I forget, but um, I guess I should write them down. But uh, <laughs> and it's something, something that I needed. Like I said, it, it's helping me reflect on my overall existence. And like I said, it goes from depression to joyous. Yeah, I just, yeah, it's been really enjoyable to me. Yeah, well, hey, I've I've appreciated it, um, and uh, yeah, no no recording next next Sunday, but yeah, we'll uh, I'll give you a call so we can so we can chat further. Okay, cool. Sounds good. Have a good week. Yeah, you do the same. I'll, I'll talk, talk to you next Sunday. Sunday. All right, cool. All right, bye bye. Coming into this project, I had no idea what to expect. My hope was to get to know my father and understand his story in a way that helped me understand mine. I was hoping to gain a better understanding as to why I feel this external pressure as a dad. The pressure that stems from negative stereotypes that painted me and my skin as a failure the second I entered this earth. My expectations for this project weren't high, they weren't low, they just didn't exist which is what allowed me to enter each of these conversations with no other objective than to listen, learn, and most importantly, heal. Since our last recorded conversation on May 3rd, 2020, I feel like the world is flipped upside down. During the healing I sought throughout this podcast, I feel like I gained a deeper understanding of me, my fatherhood, and my blackness. Learning my paternal grandmother had fled the South in pursuit of a life free of lynching, I mean, that was a game changer for me. It's also why that same month, when Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd became household names, that I felt the uneasy connectivity between those who threatened my family 100 years ago and those who are simply unable to say Black Lives Matter today. My story is a product of those who came before me. The joys, the pain, the triumphs, the hurts. At one point, I may have thought I had overcome the hurt, but it wasn't until I addressed it, questioned it, acknowledged it, and put in deep emotional labor that I was able to meet that hurt, see that hurt, and move forward from it in a way that allows me to break free from all that hurt and show up for my family and my girls 
in a healthy way going forward. As for my mom, she knew Maurice and I were having these conversations. When I asked if I could ask her some questions, she said, I'll answer any and every question you have, but I don't want it to be recorded. Moving on from that pain was hard and I can't go back. Maurice and I have talked almost every week since we stopped recording. But while my recorded conversations with him helped me understand my journey as a dad, it was my private, unrecorded conversations with my mom that helped me finally discover who it is I really want to be as a parent. The selflessness, the intentionality, the sacrifice everything in my life mentality that allowed her son to overcome everything you just heard about. Quite simply, I just want to be her. Complicated Fatherhood was written, recorded, and edited by me, Ryan Rucker. All music was recorded and produced by me as well. This podcast has helped me heal, and I hope it's done the same for you. And if you'd like, I'd be honored for you to rate, review, and share this podcast within your community. Special thanks to my wife, Allie, for encouraging me and creating the space in our lives for me to record, edit, and write this podcast. It's an honor doing life with you, so thank you, babe. Also, thank you to Maurice for allowing me to record these incredibly personal conversations. We can't go back, nor do I want to, but I'm hopeful these conversations can encourage families all over to ask tough questions and seek that healing in a meaningful way. Find me on Instagram at Complicated Fatherhood, or you can find my personal page, which is Ryan Rucker. Thank you for being here. Take care of yourself.